Welcome to Improbable Developments. My name is Kevin Fryer. Each month I will interview scientists, investigators, and patients who are actively working in medical research and development. Our goal is to help patients and those who care about them to get to know the kinds of people working on their behalf. On this month's Probable Developments, we're talking to Kieran Gagan. I met Kieran a long time ago when he was written up in Rugby World magazine as one of the top five rugby referees in the country. I had a much younger body then. I still played the occasional match. I'd seen him around Pfizer, but this gave me a reason to talk to him. Recently, Kieran's written a couple of books based on his experience as a protein chemist. The first is a technical book for other biochemists called Enzymes, Wizards, and Secret Passages, Intuitive Lessons in Biochemistry. The second one is probably more fitting for our audience. It's called Creating Cures, a young scientist's first job in American biopharma. Since he wrote this book, he gave me another reason to reach out and talk to him once again. When you look at Kieran's career from the outside, you may think, gee, he never really swayed from anything. He never had that big curve in his career. But I think you'll hear as we talk to him, he had many forks in the road. He had to make choices. So we're going to hear from the young scientist that he talks about in his book. So usually, Kieran, we reflect on the work that someone's done in their career, usually recently, something big. But I really want to go back to the beginning of how you decided to even become a scientist. What drew you into this arena? Well, Kevin, let's go back to Dublin, Ireland, 1960, when I'm eight years of age. And so the 60s, that magic decade of uh, so many good things, some things not so great. Those were the years that formed my conscious childhood and my adolescence. And by the end of the decade, I was 18 years of age, ready to go to college, and had decided to take a degree in science. Uh, so how did I get to that point? Well, Ireland in 1960 was kind of at a low ebb, and some enlightened leaders of the country were just beginning to plant the seeds that would lean to the lead, to the green shoots that would form uh, the modern country. Uh, pretty poor self-image. I think we consider ourselves the losers of the world at that time. But there were a lot of influences that worked on me through the 60s that led me to lift up my eyes and aim for something maybe a little bit higher. So let me mention a few of those. Uh, interesting one on the national level was the election of President Kennedy. And I remember in 1963, standing with my back to the River Liffey, watching the presidential motorcade drive by and the famous profile of the president, seen from the left, as it always is in the portraits. Um, he was a great inspiration to Irish people to say that, uh, you know, you, 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 can, you can lift yourself up. Those for the 10 years of the decade, I attended uh, a Jesuit school in Dublin, Gonzaga College. And uh, although the words had not been put into this particular format at that time, that didn't happen until I think about 1973, that Jesuit educational ethic of preparing men and women for others uh, was very much present uh, and, and, and being delivered um, to the students at that school. Uh, and the idea was that, you know, your life is there to enjoy to the full, uh, to, to be uh, a time of growth and fulfillment, but it wasn't for you to live it purely for your own gratification. 
there had to be an element of uh, contribution to making <clears throat> a better world in some way. Uh, then other inspirations, a lot of them, you mentioned sport already. Um, heroes like Roger Bannister, uh, who had been attending to his medical duties in London in the morning, caught a train to Oxford and ran the first uh, sub four minute mile in the afternoon. This idea of the amateur athlete, uh, the green jersey of Ireland worn at Lansdowne Road Stadium, which was just about a mile from our house where I grew up. Uh, what a wonderful thing to see students and, and uh, men from offices uh, downtown representing the country, playing the game at a high level on a Saturday afternoon, and then being ordinary people on Monday morning. And so the idea was there that you could be a sort of renaissance person. Uh, in order to excel in athletics, you didn't have to um, become a professional. You didn't have to focus 24-7 on your sport. You could do more than one thing in your life. And I think I was lucky enough to um, learn that lesson early on. I never cut myself off too strictly to be nothing but a scientist, nothing but an athlete. Um, I was able to explore a lot of avenues uh, in life. So how did I get into science? Well, two of the strongest influences on me are the things that I'll mention next. One was the exploits of the American astronauts of the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo programs. Uh, I can still remember sitting in my grandmother's house, listening on the radio to the launch of John Glenn's mission, the first orbital mission uh, by an American astronaut. Uh, and then as television came into the picture, and especially the immediacy with which um, the ordinary person at home could join in these uh, pioneering missions, um, breaking frontiers every time in engineering and science. This was a fantastically stimulating idea that, that, that drew me toward the world of science. Uh, a second that came at the end of the decade was the serialization in one of the London Sunday papers of Jim Watson's book, The Double Helix. That's his famous but uh, somewhat disreputable account of the discovery of the molecular structure of DNA. And I was in no way prepared, having had uh, a school education largely based on classical languages and literature and so forth, just a little bit of science thrown in, but not much. I was in no way prepared to understand mysterious incantations like adenine, thymine, uh, cytosine, guanine, phosphodiester, crystallography, the terms that filled up this book. But what came through so clearly was the excitement of discovery, of doing something that nobody had ever done before, and that, uh, if anything, human could last forever, would in fact endure. So with those, with those stimuli driving me, I made the choice to become an undergraduate student in science at University College Dublin, and I made my way in there, began my studies in 1970. So that was difficult. I had uh, quite a deficit in scientific preparation compared to many of my fellow students. With lectures presented to 300 students, it was not easy to get a whole lot of uh, individual attention. And so the first couple of years were, were pretty challenging. I had to sink or swim without getting a lot of help. But I might have been saved by uh, a sort of personal impulse to think through to the bottom of things, not to be satisfied with superficial explanations. I, I, I think I had the habit wanting to think through to the bottom 
of questions, of not being satisfied with formulaic or superficial explanations of the subject matter. And this drove me uh, to catch up eventually with, with, with students who, who were ahead of me because of better uh, preparation. And so in the last couple of years of undergraduate study where classes had become smaller, I, I no longer suffered from that particular uh, disadvantage. <clears throat> so University College Dublin had um, a pretty long established biochemistry department, which was uh, biochemistry became my major subject. And with due respect to um, the faculty members there, I think the lesson that they taught me above all was that science is something that you have to love. Uh, they didn't have the <clears throat> most advanced equipment. Not all of them were the highest achievers in their field, but they did have this dedication to science and beauty of science, the intrigue of science, that um, they were able to pass on to, to students. And it was certainly something that became part of my, uh, my makeup. So that got you through to your undergraduate degree. Um, and I know at that point in life, a lot of us say, wow, I got through college. I did this. I got through university. Now what? There's a lot of options open. What directions did you consider and where did you go from here? With the influence of heroic figures that I mentioned before, um, you know, the, the Tenzing and Hillary on Everest, Bannister on the track, um, Mike Gibson playing rugby for Ireland. There, there was this um, drive to to see where, not to limit oneself, but to try to go a little higher. And I think the way in which that found expression was in the reverence for the great institutions of the world that existed in Ireland and that many of the faculty members who were my teachers had benefited from in the course of their own training. For example, my own professor of biochemistry, Jerry Harrington, had taken a PhD at Cambridge, England and a postdoc at Tufts University in Boston before returning home. And so through uh, Jim Watson's book and some other factors, I, I had a particular enthusiasm for Cambridge. So I went along to Jerry Harrington in his office and told him that I'd like, if possible, to move on to a PhD at Cambridge. And his first reaction was, yeah, and I'm the Shah of Iran. But he then uh, was very good. He wrote the letters. Uh, one thing led to another. And uh, partly, I think, because I had some extracurricular uh, accomplishments in areas like playing rugby and, and being in a debating society, uh, because uh, achievements like that were still valued when it came to selecting students, I was accepted as a research student with some very helpful financial support from King's College. And I'm always grateful, of course, uh, for, for the, um, the trust uh, that King's placed in me uh, in that way. So this was graduate school in the English style, right? No courses, just become an apprentice researcher in the lab of Hal Dixon, that's H.B.F. Dixon, who was the Dublin-born son of a very distinguished Irish researcher, H.H. Dixon. And Hal was an extraordinarily brilliant but rather unworldly person whose, um, many years later, his obituary said that he had been cleverer than many of his contemporaries but so dedicated to help them, to helping them solve their problems that he neglected to build a huge reputation for himself. So that even though great enzymologists like Jeremy Knowles and Alan Furst uh, knew how good Hal was and consulted him um, for help and collaboration, um, 
you know, he, he, he wasn't a world figure in the way that they became. Uh, but I have to make it clear that I was never in the same intellectual class as, as Hal or these people that he uh, would interact with. So um, the other feature about Hal was that he was a rather unworldly person, as I said, in, in, in terms of not caring that much about building a huge reputation for himself. He would choose uh, somewhat obscure, extremely difficult problems. I think his, his, my own tendency to be uh, just a little bit reticent and um, even shy, uh, probably aligned with his in a way that was uh, reinforcing, even though it was an unintentional choice on my part to work with, with a person like that. You know, as much as I know about you and, and had seen in your career when we were both at Pfizer, you know, that that ethos of helping others get their work done and solve their problems. And and when we spoke last week, when we were getting ready for this, and you talked about how some of your best work were on these little side projects to help other people solve problems, I think that that's, you know, that's an important value that was passed to you. And I think that that's an important thing for people who look at scientists from the outside and say, you know, there's this, there's different types of scientists and they have different motivations moving them. Um, and it, it's just very interesting to me. So how did you get into protein science? And what is protein science? If you could give us a 30-second view of that. I had originally been drawn into the field <clears throat> by an attraction to DNA. And I did a lot of reading as an undergraduate that continued along that line. But I was also learning chemistry, and it became clear to me that while DNA is marvelously interesting as a carrier of information, it's not particularly interesting as a chemical material. In fact, its genius, if you can use that term, is that whether the information it carries and codes uh, bacterium, virus, oak tree, alligator, or human, uh, the structure of the molecule is essentially the same in all of the most important ways. Uh, and that's what, why with uh, newer techniques, we can read it so quickly. Um, chemically, it's always the same. One of DNA's most important functions is, of course, to encode the proteins of the living cell, which in contrast to DNA, uh, present with just infinite variety. Uh, they're respective amino acid sequences cause them to fold up into three-dimensional shapes that deliver crucial biological functions. And I guess I got uh, seduced, fascinated by the uh, variety, complexity, and chemical versatility of these materials. And it led me away, perhaps to my detriment in career terms, from uh, what would have been a very timely jumping onto the uh, breaking wave of uh, DNA-based research, cloning, and so forth, um, over into protein science. Um, and it's been rewarding. Spent my entire career with the proteins. I was going to say, you're, you were probably ahead of your time. As you said, you'd like to go a little bit deeper and think through the development of things. And so you looked at DNA, and I, I love the, the analysis of it. It's like, yeah, chemically, it's, it's just not interesting, even though it encodes everything biologically. Um, <laughs> but... You looked past that and said, well, there's proteins. Look at all the infinite possibilities there. The world and science just hadn't caught up to that yet and said that's probably where there's a lot of uh, 
a lot of potential for changing human life. Jumping ahead a little bit, of course, um, most of our listeners will realize that uh, the great majority of drug targets are proteins. And so in terms of leading me toward uh, work in the drug industry, the choice of proteins as a uh, focus of interest, you know, was, was productive to that, to that extent. There was work to be done, uh, learning to be had by looking at how proteins behave and um, participating in elucidating their structures with a view to understanding how drugs might interact with them and alter their function. So as you got into this, this field of protein science, you had to go through a number of postdocs and, and a number of uh, experiences to get you ready for a real job. Um, and, and in creating cures, you, you write a lot about some young chemist, you know, trying to get ready for a real job and to, to make that decision. And you describe two paths, academia and industry, and you kind of contrast them. Can you tell us a little bit about your approach to that choice and, and how you ended up going the way you did? Yeah, I think when any of us is young, there's a very large number of paths open. And of course, it's one of the central uh, features of, of human life that we can only choose one of those paths and that becomes our, our life history. Having moved to the University of California at Davis for about two and a half years to finally learn some protein chemistry, and then on to Harvard Medical School for over four years to learn a little bit more about proteins in action using techniques like spectroscopy. Uh, I found in 1984, when I was beginning to feel the need to find uh, what you might call a proper job, as opposed to a postdoc stint, that uh, the only thing that universities were interested in at that particular time were, was quite naturally the... Uh, the scientists who would lead them into the world of DNA-based um, investigation. Um, and very fortunately for me, the new biotechnology industry had also opened up a need for protein scientists to join and uh, contribute. So biotech companies like Genentech, Cetus, and GenX, Genetics Institute, uh, Biogen, later on Amgen, had been formed with a view to using recombinant DNA methods to produce uh, drugs which were themselves proteins. But another um, very strong element of the potential of the new DNA-based work was to, uh, to make it useful as a tool for the discovery of small molecule drugs. And that was the opportunity that uh, was thought to exist uh, at the company where you and I both worked, uh, Pfizer in, in Groton, Connecticut, where I joined in 1984. And <clears throat> really most of my career, um, most of the work done during my career uh, under the heading, if you like, of um, using recombinant DNA methods to enable and facilitate drug discovery. Once again, a little bit deeper. Within a few years, there was a very striking example, I think, of, of how that was done uh, in, 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 in a very competitive way across many, many companies. This was the early 1980s when the um, onset of HIV disease um, was a national story, obviously, and a, a cause of great, great social concern and medical concern. 
And it's fair to say, if we say it briefly, that um, the use of, again, recombinant DNA-based methods to produce recombinant forms of viral proteins and use structure-based design, that is the use of molecular structures of proteins to visualize the interaction of potential drugs with the protein target, was a, a, a crucial contributor to the successful marketing eventually of HIV protease inhibitors, which were really the first agents that um, started the process of converting HIV disease over to uh, a chronic, um, serious, obviously, but um, survivable, manageable medical condition. That was a very competitive process. I learned the lesson there that one might be part of a program at a single company, which wouldn't go all the way to the market, but which still, in a sense, contributed to the overall uh, process of bringing that drug forward. So I think it's pretty clear what you, you chose industry in this case. Um, had your motivation for, for what you were doing changed at all when you moved into industry? Well, I think my principal personal motivation was to live the life of a scientist. And that, of course, is nobody's business but my own. So the crucial question is whether I can pursue that goal while satisfying the entirely legitimate needs of a company that employs me. And I think it's the job of management in a company, particularly the senior leadership of a company, to create the conditions in which uh, members of staff can achieve that um, satisfactory uh, alignment. And I liken it a little bit to compass needles, uh, all of which line up freely with the magnetic field of the earth. Uh, I think you and I had the experience of working in a company where the vast majority of people freely and for their own motivation, with their own reasons for being there in the first place, found it entirely satisfactory to work for the common objectives of bringing new medicines to market without any further compulsion or um, excessive discipline. Uh, there wasn't a strain involved. It was what I wanted to do aligned so well with what the company wanted to achieve that you know, the path was open and the work was there to be done. The hard part was that drug discovery is hard. It sure is. Um, <laughs> that's why I didn't stay in discovery all that long. I moved on to the other end of the, the, the process. Um, you know, I actually was having this conversation since we spoke uh, before with someone who, who took the academic route. And he was a neurobiologist, became a professor, and found himself focusing more on the research than on teaching. And now he's in university administration. And I asked him, so why did you choose academics? His comment was that academics fear that if you ever step into industry, you can't come back. What do you think about that concern? Yeah, I'm wary of ma making unsupported assertions about a question like that, Kevin. But I think there is some truth in it. Um, why, why would it be hard to make the switch? Let me um, answer in terms of a hands-on researcher. 
Uh, I think a wise academic researcher selects an important problem that seems likely to crack after appropriate effort. So take a classic example uh, like that of Christian Anfinson, who was a pioneer of protein folding studies. He didn't pick on the protein ribonuclease and then ask if it refolded. He went and looked for a protein that was able to be unfolded and capable of refolding, and then started to study how it did that. Uh, in contrast, if you're working in industry and you regard a certain protein as a potential drug target in a certain disease, well, that's the protein that you have to study, however gnarly its properties may be. So there's, there's a real choice in terms of the problems that can be selected for study by the academic researcher on the one hand and the industrial researcher on the other. Let me just mention a couple of exceptions. The first, I think, is relatively trivial in that certain emerging technologies, and I'm thinking in particular of cryo-electron microscopy, which is um, a rapidly evolving, highly successful technique for elucidating three-dimensional molecular structures. A technique like that comes to hand but is extremely expensive. It may be possible for major companies to acquire the technology, uh, give younger personnel experience with it uh, more rapidly than is possible over on the university side. And so young, universe, young researchers from industry may have the opportunity to transit over to the academic side after having gained experience <coughs> with the, uh, the relevant technology. So a second exception, which <coughs> it would probably be more controversial, relates to the initiatives in drug discovery that have sprung up at NIH and in more than a few major universities. And these tend to require skill sets that are best acquired in industry and so have created occasional opportunities for movement from industry to uh, the academic side. I recently listened to a TED radio hour where people are so focused in, in the flow of their work that it's just, it's taken everything away. Time goes away. All their other worries go away. Is that what you were speaking of when you said your best work happened that way? I think the ideal state for an industrial researcher is that um, his or her very best scientific work happens to be the work which contributes most to uh, the collective objective toward which that person is working, drug discovery, whatever it may be. I look back and I know that I did my absolute best for collective endeavors, but there were occasional observations that we made which required um, considerable thought and experimental work to clarify, which probably were not considered to be the most significant and valuable elements of the work. Um, I think they had merit in terms of contributing to a high level of overall management of relevant information. But nevertheless, probably could have been set aside from the main elements of the program without enormous loss. I suspect that many of my colleagues could have dispensed with the information that we generated in doing that uh, and regarded it as um, you know, a side issue compared to the main objective of the program. Nevertheless, I think it contributed to our overall objective, which was building a team with um, maximum expertise in the relevant technology. And it was always encouraged and supported by our uh, very enlightened management. Well, and I think that 
you know, from a from an industry point of view, the work that you did there when you and I, I don't have the specifics that you were working on, but when you saw an observation that was unexplained and you did the work to explain it, you never know when that explanation will become important for a later project or something totally that seems unrelated at the moment um, to that work. So I think it's adding to the body of knowledge. I think that's true and relevant for a couple of reasons. One is the basic principle of science is that uh, science should never solve the same problem twice. And for that reason, if we were able to elucidate um, some unexpected feature of protein structure and publish it, uh, we could perhaps save time elsewhere in the scientific enterprise, uh, while also, I hope, contributing to the reputation of our employer as a good center of science. Uh, second, which I think you implied in your own comment, is that from a scientific perspective, it's possible to regard drug discovery as a chaotic system. Now, I don't mean that it's disorganized and untidy. What I mean is that in the sense of the scientific concept of science, a small initial event can lead to a very substantial later outcome, the proverbial butterfly flapping its wings in Rio and causing a cyclone in the Philippines. And so you never know in drug discovery, when you're working on a particular topic, which piece of information might just be vital to ultimate success. And for that reason, you try to do everything. You know, as, as we talked about what's driven you in your career, and the one thing that comes out is the curiosity and fascination with like the, the you know, starting with space and starting with uh, the double helix and all that, the fascination and following that, you know, and, and chasing it. It's the same thing here. And it's just that, gee, that result looks a little bit off. That That's not what we expected. There's something there. Let's chase it a little bit and see what we can find. I think that that's the excite, excitement that comes through doing science, wherever you're doing science is you're going to come up with new questions and you have the opportunity to, to chase them. Not just the one that was assigned to you or or was your prime focus? I'm not sure that people outside of, you know, the scientific hallways, the laboratories, understand how how deep that is in in a scientist's uh, fiber and DNA. Well, when you work for the long haul, professionalism becomes the name of the game, and I, I think that you mentioned a moment ago um, something that's always fascinated me. Um, to me one of the crucial uh, elements of professionalism for an experimental scientist is experimental design. Uh, <clears throat> from the point of view of an experimental scientist, there's one correct way to design an experiment. You consider what you know, and in the form of an experiment, you take one step away from that into the unknown, and you see what you observe. And preferably, there will be two outcomes to the experiment, and you're going to know which each of them means. Now, once in a blue moon, you'll get a result that just knocks you sideways. You know, how could that possibly happen? And sometimes you just go back and you realize, well, you made a mistake, you got to check the data, you straighten everything out, everything's normal. But sometimes the anomaly persists, and that's the time for an experimentalist to be happy, because pretty soon, when you've really surprised yourself, pretty soon when you understand what happened, you're going to have learned something. 
which is what it's all about. So whether you be an academic or industrial scientist, there's only one way, in my opinion, to do proper research. Here, here. So let's go back to your story a little bit. And throughout the story, you've had to make these directional choices. You made the early decision to go towards science. Um, you went towards biochemistry and molecular biology, and then toward protein chemistry, and then toward industry. And I know, since we shared time at Pfizer, there's a point when you get to your, in your career where you have to either choose the path that leads up the management ladder or the path that leads up the senior scientific ladder. So what was that like for you? Which way did you go and, and, and why? Well, first the facts, uh, through my entire career at Pfizer, I was a lab head, which meant that I was typically supervising something like three to five people. Now, I'm going to say, but Kevin, I was in management. I was supervising three to five people. And I took that very, very seriously. Um, after all, a manager represents the company to a person who reports to them and must also represent that staff member to the company. So at our company, we were always fortunate to have robust systems and structures around to guide us in that role. And I'm glad to say that they even improved over time. But the fact is equally that nobody ever asked me to take a management role at a higher level. And I don't recall that that ever caused me any disappointment or frustration. So a great friend of mine, molecular biologist Peter Hobart, once urged people to do what they're good at. And I think this is great advice. I mean, I could have handled quite well some of the challenges that senior managers face, but others not so well. Uh, and also, and I never tire of pointing this out to people, it would be a poor scientific organization that takes all its best talents away from research. So the world does tend to set high value on prestigious titles and senior positions. But I have to say that I treasured the role that I had, right? the teamwork, the great science as Pfizer evolved, the extraordinary gift of looking around a meeting room at work and seeing the most remarkable assembly of gifted individuals, each in their own very personal way and for their own reasons, dedicated to a common mission of discovering new medicines. It was a marvelous thing to be a part of, and I've no regrets whatsoever. But thanks to Pfizer, my dream came true. I lived the life of a scientist. That's fantastic. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Kieran outside of work. What do you do for fun? Well, since uh, retiring nearly three years ago, I, I have certainly slowed down a bit. No more Christmas morning trips to fix the mass spectrometer. Uh, no more late nights um, at the lab. Um, aside from writing a couple of books so far, uh, I do a very small amount of teaching about career development. Uh, the course uh, that I'm going to mention was actually the stimulus for the second book, uh, Creating Cures. Uh, this teaching is in um, an excellent program at Montgomery College in Germantown, Maryland, led by Dr. Mike Gove and known as Biotrain. It's a three-way collaboration between Montgomery College, the state of Maryland, and the local biopharma industry, which is strong in that area northwest of uh, Washington, D.C. So my wife and I uh, enjoy going to the gym. Uh, most days I like to walk. I follow the sports that I liked when I was young. I can do that now through ESPN and other services. Uh, and I try to keep reading, so that's a mix. Uh, I just finished 
heroically 700 pages of Mikhail Gorbachev, but before that I read 800 pages about Paul McCartney, some old John le Carre, uh, and thanks to the New York Times, I've overcome uh, my long-held fear of Sudoku, and I like crossword puzzles in the British and Irish cryptic style. And we're speaking in January 2020, pretty soon it'll be tax season, and I'll be rejoining the uh, volunteer effort for tax preparation in the VITA program that provides uh, free tax preparation services to persons with income up to about $50,000. So now that I have the free time for something like that, uh, it's a chance to, to share some of the good fortune that I've had in my own life. Wow. So you actually do more work for fun. <laughs> um, that's, that's actually great, though. Uh, that's not relaxing, uh, doing tax preparation, but I'm hoping this is coming, this is going to be my second year. And I think I understand it a little better than I did on the first occasion. Well, that's good. Um, there's those commercials out there with the so-so the taxes. You don't want to do that for somebody. Um, so let's talk about your book a little bit, the latest one, Creating Cures, a Young Scientist's First Job at American Biopharma. I've, I'm almost all the way through it now. And I found myself reminiscing about different times in my career, things that you describe. And I'm like, wow, I remember that. Um, not the specific what was going on, but the feeling, the, the excitement, the choices that were out there, being in a good environment, as you said, looking around the table at some of the smartest people in the world. Um, but why did you write that book? And, and what is it about, really? Well, I think it's true that most people have a book or two uh, ready to go within their uh, their mind. And I found that I had a couple, uh, both of which you've mentioned. Creating Cures, um, I think, followed from uh, my long-held enjoyment of Sir Peter Medawar's famous book, Advice to a Young Scientist. That was written in 1979. It's absolutely great read, certainly recommended to anybody uh, who hasn't come across it yet. It's still available. Um, but it does go back 40 years now, and uh, parts of the world that um, Medawara considered are long gone. Um, he also writes, as so many Nobel class authors writing about the scientific life tend to do, about uh, career, about the attractions of academic science, and assumes in a way that the reader uh, him or herself is aiming to go to the very top of academic science. And that's not uh, actually a goal that, uh, that most people set for themselves. Uh, so the book is about the fundamentals of biopharma in terms of the duality of business and science, uh, about its need to satisfy medical regulators, the patent system, and its stakeholders, uh, about the process of applying, interviewing, joining and working, uh, about why researchers can be affected by changes in science and changes in medical and business priorities, uh, and also throws in some additional information about publication from industry, presentation skills, and finally lists some of the marvelous new medicines, both large and small molecule in nature that the industry has produced in the last 20 years or so. It's very good. and I. I think it's a good read for just about anybody who's interested in in the field of, of medical research. Um, 
whatever flavor. I think it's a really good read because it puts in fairly simple terms what life is like as you're doing that. And I enjoyed the, uh, you talked about searching for a job and interviewing and that chapter, that was really interesting because I remember going to the seminars of, you know, these bright young postdocs that would come in with something new that was really exciting. And it helped us as already being employees, you know, current employees, you know, to stay on top of the science that was coming out of uh, labs around the world. Um, it was really neat to, to read that again. For a person who loves to learn, biopharma industry just can't be beat. It's a f fantastically uh, developmental environment. It's not just a question of having opportunity. It's a question of absolutely having to keep up with the latest developments. And we've been fortunate, Kevin, you and I, in the, the last 40 years or so, has been a, an era of incredible progress in biochemistry, cell biology, understanding of the genome, so forth. I mean, almost every week there are sensational developments coming forward that get our attention. And, and so um, the challenge, but also the opportunity of keeping up with such a fast-breaking science has been a wonderful thing to experience. Yep. And it fits right in with you know, today's world of freely flowing information. Well, not only is it freely flowing, but it's being created as fast as it's flowing. And so it just keeps coming and coming. And it is, it's a challenge, but it is a, it is a great career long challenge to say, I'm going to stay on top of this as best I can. And I'm going to surf this wave of, of knowledge that's created and do something with it. Um, so if you had to summarize the advice you give in the book or the, the, the underlying lessons, what would that be in just just one sentence. Well, I have a weakness for rock music in general, and I sprinkled some song titles through the book. I think uh, I used one for the title of the final chapter, which uh, was, If It Feels Good, Do It. And basically what I'm saying to the young scientist is, um, if you think industry is uh, the right choice for you, then do it, go for it. But keep your eyes open. Be aware of how quickly things change. It's, it's, it's a balance between saying, look, for me, it was a question of dying and going to heaven, more or less, for 32 years, and saying to the young scientists that my experience will not be yours, but I still ask you to take a look at this industry and, and give it every chance, because it could be the way to live your dream, to live the life of a scientist. What a wonderful way to put it. Mm -hmm. And so I want to thank you for your time, Kieran. Um, I'm going to invite my listeners to, to check out both your books and the BioTrain program you spoke about and the Vitatex program you talk about um, in the show notes. So thank you very much for your time. And I hope maybe we get to do this again some other time. Thanks for your interest, Kevin. Improbable Developments is brought to you by Salem Oaks Consulting, empowering patients to shape the future of medicine. Special thanks to sound designer Jake Tompkins who produced this episode.